When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, welcome back. So as I uh, continue my coverage of the economy and and of precious metals and and really get back to some of the things that I'm used to talking about here on the Silver Fortune podcast, one of the things that I don't want to do is make the mistake of moving on from COVID-19 too early. You guys know that for for many, many weeks here at Silver Fortune, that was a, a good chunk of what I focused on. And dating back to, to late January, that was mostly what I talked about because I, I had a good hunch that it was going to be a huge economic and market uh, driver. And, and it turns out that it was. But what I don't want to do is to move on from it too early. I see many in the, the mainstream media, especially the mainstream financial media, in their constant quest to, to look for something bullish, to look for something that uh, will, will paint a picture of rosy... Uh, stock market projections and and economic projections looking forward uh, have have already begun to um, discount the potential or appear or appear to just ignore the potential for second or, or third waves of the virus, uh, future social distancing measures in in the future, as well as ignore the very serious economic damage that has been done beyond you know the temporary layoffs. Some serious long-term economic damage, I believe, has been done in, in just a matter of weeks. And let's not forget that most of these lockdown measures haven't even been ended yet, right? So I don't want to move on from that too early. Um, I think it's going to be with us through the summer into the fall. That risk is going to be there. It's going to affect consumer behaviors. It's going to affect consumption. Um, and and certainly I, I see that in some states, some countries, I, I could very well see see second or third peaks. I could see uh, more social distancing measures uh, many, many months into the future. I'm not saying it's me a constant, you know, as, as you know, Neil Kashkari from the Fed recently said, an 18-month lockdown. I think that would be way overboard, right? Um, but I don't think that we should just move on from it and say that, eh, you know, regardless of your feelings on it, just move on and say that it's not going to have a serious economic impact past you know the month of May. It will, um, and and that's one of the really unfortunate things I've seen over the last few days, last week maybe, is is a lot in the financial media really antsy to move on from COVID nineteen, almost outright ignoring it. I mean, it's you, you'll have entire interviews where you hear a mention here or there about a virus. Um, but but nothing really more than that, and and I think that that is again goes back to to much of this goal seeking that that occurs in in much of the mainstream financial media. I'm talking the CNBC types, right? Uh, of 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 always looking for a bull case for stocks, always looking for a reason to justify rosy stock projections and rosy economic outlook. You see it among the broader population, an, an always optimistic viewpoint. Why? Well, I mean, people like a, a strong economy. People like having a a uh, relatively 
um, easy labor market to, to get a job and to, to get raises, etc. People like it when their stock market portfolio or their retirement funds uh, generate decent returns and, and they feel more comfortable the, about their financial future. They like all of those things. They like it when the price of their house is rising on, on a yearly basis, right? That makes people feel good. However, this you know, country, much of the Western economy, um, most of you know, first world countries around the world have really suffered from a, an addiction to this positive economic goal-seeking for the past 10 to 20 years, really suffered from it. And, and what I mean by that is, of course, this, this constant urge, this constant desire to, to always offset any recession, always prevent any recession, any downturn in markets through really extraordinary policies, money printing from, from central banks, lower interest rates, fiscal stimulus, uh, you name it, um, central banks and governments have done it all in the name of creating really a never-ending uh, boom cycle. The, the IMF today, however, um, announced something that I think we all kind of knew at this point, um, that this boom cycle that we were in until very recently, or at least what you'd call an economic expansion, is almost certainly over. I think in the United States, it was the longest stock bull market in history. One of the longest, if not the longest. Um, obviously, it's been over for quite some time now since stocks went into officially a bear market some, some weeks ago. But in terms of the economic expansion that began back in 2010, well, that's over. Uh, the IMF in 2020 is now predicting a, a global GDP contraction of 3%. 3% globally. Now, if we were talking about just the United States, I'd say that that is conservative. If we're talking about the globe, though, that's a big deal. To, to put that in context, according to the IMF, uh, in, in 2009, uh, the, during the Great Recession, the global economy contracted by 0.1%. 0.1% for an entire calendar year during one of the greatest economic downturns we've seen in quite a while. Now, should have downturned more, should have been a much larger downturn had governments and, and central banks not stepped in. And again, going back to this addiction to constant growth, constantly extending a credit cycle uh, um, and uh, economic expansion cycle uh, in a very dangerous manner. But but 3%, you know, compared to that 0.1%, is, is, uh, it's massive. Now, Part of the reason why that's so large compared to the financial crisis is that what we're dealing with right now is very synchronized, a very synchronized slowdown. First, it was China, and then it was, um, you know, some European countries, South Korea, you know, some other Southeast Asian countries that really suffered economically um, from this virus, and then it was. Pretty much the whole world, or at least you know the United States and, and India and, and the whole of Europe and, and so many other countries that have now been roped into this um, this situation where you know everybody's on, on stay-at-home orders or social distancing or what have you. It's a huge cost to the to the economic system, and it's extremely synchronized. It's not one country, one region, and then a year or two later, 
you know, emerging markets, some emerging markets bust, and then a year or two later, it's a, no, it's all at once. And I think that really plays into why this is such a large slowdown on a yearly basis. But what's more astounding than that? I don't know what it will ultimately be. Will it be 3%? You know, if IMF is indeed making the mistake that many others are in discounting the very real risk of second and third waves, one of which we may be seeing right now in China, right now, uh, even though I, I continue to put very little faith into their data, um, that obviously could, could pretend even lower uh, economic growth or, or deeper contraction. What's even more astounding than that, though, get this, 2021, the IMF is predicting really a, a record year in growth since 1980, 5.8% yearly, uh, year-over-year growth. Now, part of the reason that's so high is because the year prior was going to be so low. Look, uh, 2011 or 2010 was a, was a pretty strong year in terms of economic growth globally. Um, the other, you know, years, you know, just prior to the recession were pretty, 2007, 2006, uh, 2004. Those are pretty strong years as well. But 5.8 is going to be a very strong year of economic growth. And and what it's all said and done, I mean, it'd be hard to come up with a number, come up with a scenario in which 2021 is not some form of, of economic growth relative to 2020. It's such a deep contraction, a 3% contraction, um, to not come up with some positive growth in 2021. And with that, I would probably agree, unless things get much, much worse, which is a real possibility. However, I, I do think that the IMF and many others are falling into this, this situation of this constant optimism, right? Um, you, you even have some commentators saying now, some analysts on the stock market saying things along the lines of, well... You know, the recession is here. This is from, uh, I think this is from Goldman. You know, the recession's here. The downturn's here. The stock market downturn is here. Obviously, earnings and whatnot will be impacted by this. Um, but but really, investors shouldn't be worried about what's happening right now. They should be looking long term. I'll, I'll discuss more of that in a second. But IMF has kind of fallen into that trap of, yeah, it's bad now. But hey, guess what? Record year of growth next year, 5.8%, baby. I mean, what more... Do you need than that? And, and I think that they're really not accounting for some variables. Um, by 2021, I, I hope that this COVID-19 is mostly behind much of the world. Um, whether that's because, and I know some of you guys are going to go off on this, but because of vaccine, because of a very effective antiviral treatment, um, hopefully not because of just widespread herd immunity, but in some countries, some cities, some states, that may be the case. Uh, hopefully we've we've tested, 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 have a very good handle on how to treat it, the science behind it, all of that, and that by 2021, it's just... And, and hopefully everybody's wearing masks. Like, we probably should have started back in, in January or February, right? Um, and, and we may have never dealt with such a large mess here in the United States. I don't know. Maybe. Hopefully it's behind us in 2021. It's a variable, though, to account for. New peaks, Right, especially if we're already dealing with one towards the tail end of 2020. However, what the IMF is not taking into account is the adjustment in consumer behaviors, regardless of what COVID-19 is actually doing. We're probably still going to have some cases in 2021, globally. 
And there's going to be certain aspects of the economy that are going to take a long time to recover if they ever do. Primarily, I'm talking travel and hospitality. I mean, what what does the future of the cruise ship industry look like? I mean, the Diamond Princess is going to be a name that's sort of etched into history. Not because a crazy amount of people died on the ship, but because of the, the lockdown that people spent on the ship, quarantine on the ship for, for weeks, for, for a very long period of time. And that was just one of many cruise ships that underwent that fate. Some worse, some better than, than others. What about the hotel industry? Well, it, it's hard to say. How many are people going to be traveling around the world? Certainly vacations may become less common. I don't know about business travel, um, but but I, I wouldn't be surprised if some of those destinations maybe suffer a similar fate to as as cruise ships do, right? Um, I mean, not on you know the hospitality industry, the travel industry, the airline industry is going to be hit by this, and and we're talking about a ton of airlines, airline uh, uh, jet manufacturers, and and we're talking about hotels and, and restaurants that are going to be hit by this. You know, that's that's a long-term factor that, that we have to factor into to economic projections. Um, additionally, you have to factor into all the small businesses that right now, as I speak, are in the process of collapsing, whether they know it or not, right? Um, maybe they're just going to throw in the towel and say, you know what, I don't even want to bother with some of the small business assistance that governments are offering, this is this is my last straw. I was already in, in dire financial straits, as many I believe probably were. Um, maybe they don't realize it yet. Maybe they've already thrown in the towel. It's hard to say. But there's a lot of small businesses that are in that situation. There's gonna be a lot of businesses that bring people back and realize, hey, guess what? I uh, we did actually pretty decent with with a lower uh, um, workforce, and you know, gonna let some people go. I mean, as a whole, I think. The unemployment number is not just going to snap back. I mean, this goes back to more of a, a L-shaped recovery versus a a V-shaped. Better way of putting it would be, yeah, some of it's going to snap back very quickly, but not to where it was beforehand in terms of jobs and economic growth, right? So, I, and the IMF, I think, is goal-seeking here. Maybe um, they're they're far too rosy in their projections. Um, consumer behaviors, business behaviors, corporate behaviors um, are going to be changed by this for a very long time. And it's going to go far beyond just the COVID-19. I mean, as I've said here for a while, this is a recession that was long overdue. This is a massive bubble beforehand. And you have to deal with the ramifications of popping that bubble and or the, the ramifications of doing your very best to patch up that hole and put air back in the bubble through central bank and through government policies. Right? You have to deal with those ramifications of printing trillions of dollars, spending trillions of dollars. And you can't say that everything's just going to go back to normal with trillions of dollars added to the national debt, uh, the corporate debt, consumer debt, um, and a significant debasement of currencies across the world. Right? In, in terms of stocks, in terms of the stock market, this one is, is, is frustrating for me. Now, on one hand, you know, if we're heading into a high inflationary environment, it's not great for business, it's not great for the economy, but I understand the case of, of 
expecting stocks to not do that poorly in that situation versus something like bonds, right? And bonds have a, I mean, some people would say, well, come on, stocks are, why not just precious metals? I get it. Precious metals are a great hedge against that. Stocks, however, do represent something real. Um, bonds are, are fiat-based, right? You can understand the problem there. And the bond market, if we were adding up the corporate bond market, the, the sovereign bond market, municipal bond market, you know, all fiat-based, all dollar-based, if we're talking about U.S.-denominated debt, uh, that is a huge market. And if you have enough people flowing from that, into to stocks, I mean, you can boost stocks by quite a bit. Um, so I understand that argument. However, the, the problem with the stock market is that for a very long time, I'd say until middle of February when it peaked, hit its new all-time highs, the, the, the stock market was priced for perfection. The the only way you could justify prices as high as they were was by projecting very strong economic growth and earnings growth indefinitely. And despite the fact that it was like the longest bull market in the United States ever and, and a very long economic expansion, you had to somehow come up with a way how those, to, to, to figure out how those things could go on even longer, not just a couple quarters longer, but, but years longer. Well, pretty quickly, stocks realized that, hey, we have a, never mind what things are looking like five years from now. Uh, right now, we're dealing with one of the greatest shocks to our economy ever. And stocks corrected. Not by that much. When it's all said and done, there was a huge drop. They've, they've actually gotten back quite a bit of those gains. And, and, and unfortunately, I think a lot of it goes back to, to you know, a motto the, the phrase that I've coined in the past, you know, what is the stock market, especially the bull market, representative of? Um, it's it's representative of credit growth and liquidity. Uh, there was a lot of, I think, close to, we were getting close to our, our expectations of credit uh, contraction and certainly some real lack of liquidity for a while while the stock market was collapsing. But over a period of weeks, the Federal Reserve has injected trillions of dollars into the economy. The, the federal government has done the same through for, through fiscal stimulus, through uh, credit growth. And, and now liquidity and credit growth is looking uh, pretty darn good as far as the stock market is concerned. Now, never mind the fact that earnings have been slashed across the board. The first quarter and probably the second quarter are going to be two of the worst quarters in history for a lot of these companies. There's probably a lot of close to, to bankruptcies in, in the near future. Stocks have found a way to to um, fight back for a lot of those losses, you know, fight back quite a bit in terms of gains. Uh, still a far way off from, from their new all-time highs. But already, a lot of analysts are looking for, you know, goal-seeking, looking for justification to get the stock market further up. In fact, you know, I saw this uh, tweet, and, and I, I guess I don't, know this individual or her background it looks like uh her name is um saku pan pandatharatne okay at asteroid saku um, on twitter um, asteroid uh underline saku and and she put out a tweet you know, two tweets that that are really i 
kind of frustrating, okay? And again, it's this is why the stock market's so low, and this is why you should buy in now because you don't have to be worried about the future. This is how I interpret what, what this tweet is saying. Quote, the stock market is not the economy. It's a time compression of the next 10 to 20 years of cash flow of the biggest firms. If the stock market rises, that means big companies have a solid plan to generate profits for the next 10 to 20 years. The stock market isn't down, especially for stocks like Amazon, because COVID-19 doesn't really affect their 10 to 20 year plan. This is much better than 2008, where the economy crashed and the list and the listed companies had no plan for future profits. In a perfect world, that that would that would be true. The stock market is a compression in the next 10 to 20 years, and. And I think that's sort of what these goal seekers are looking for, that, well, yeah, this is bad now, but over the next 10 to 20 years or five years or whatever, I mean, look at our projections for earnings. There's no reason to be bearish because look at how good things are going to be in the future. Again, pricing in perfection. But I have two major issues with that. First of all, there's a, a real distinct risk to a lot of these stocks and a lot of these companies uh, companies can very easily get themselves in a very bad fiscal position in terms of taking on a lot of debt um, or having difficulty servicing debt that they already have, a lot of these companies, when we're in these major economic downturns. So never mind what 10 to 20 years look like in the future. Um, what about the credit risk now for for these companies? Okay, yeah, that's a problem. Um, but furthermore, never mind what 10 to 20 years looks like in the future in terms of cash flow and what. This is the greatest economic shock that any of us will probably ever see in our lifetime. You can't just write it off and say, well, yeah, but this is why the stock should be higher. This is why Amazon is still doing so well and whatnot. That's bogus. Now, I mean, I don't know the specifics of Amazon or Walmart or whatever, which may be doing all right in this, um, in this economy in this uh, economy where, where Amazon may be in high demand because of people wanting to, to have things delivered and, and Walmart being um, somewhat of grocery and a lot of consumer good um, type of business where, where they're still doing decent business, decent sales and whatnot. I don't know about the specifics of those stocks. But, but broadly speaking, if the stock market is representative of the economy, this is the greatest economic shock we've ever experienced. And it's nowhere near close to over yet. Again, these shut-ins, not to get confused with the oil market, but these shut-ins, these lockdowns or um, social distancing, still have many weeks left in many states. And even then, it's going to open slowly. And there's, again, the risk of second or third waves, second or third um, um, stay-at-home orders, etc. I'm not arguing over right now about are those justified or not? I'm just saying that that's the fact of what we're going to have to deal with. Okay? Um, let's focus on that. Like, you, you can't just gloss over one of the greatest recessions, one of the greatest contractions of economic growth, and just look 10 to 20 years in the future. Right? Never mind just the credit risk. I mean, what about the earnings potential right now or lack thereof for a lot of these companies? The other problem, though, that I have with this is that it's making a very dangerous assumption that the next 10 to 20 years in terms of economic growth are going to be similar to or even better than the last 10 to 20 years of economic growth. It's a dangerous assumption. 
again, going back to my thesis of more of an L-shaped recovery, this is going to be with us for a long time now. This is serious economic damage, massive amount of debt that's being added to um, the globe right now. And, and central banks and governments have, have made it clear that they're going to do their best to not allow all that debt to default or to be wiped away. And instead to, to ultimately, I think, socialize a lot of it, corporate and consumer debt, um, and, and really uh, socialize it to, to the government level. But it's still debt. Debt is like a parachute behind a, a, a drag car, right? And, and with every trillion dollars of debt, you're adding some amount of you know square inches of of um, material to that parachute it's a greater and greater drag on this drag car that students very best to to uh get away right and and we're adding some serious you know we're adding another parachute to the parachute that we already had right now i mean the next 10 to 20 years if you want to know what i'm thinking of i mean i think it's extremely bearish Right, I think at some point over that time period, it could be a year from now, it could be 10 years from now, we're going to have this massive collapse, whether it's hyperinflationary or otherwise that, that everybody's kind of been waiting for. But in the interim, it's not some sort of like rosy projection. It's not like things are just going to be great until then, nor are they going to be great until, or, nor are they just going to be great and rosy afterwards. There's going to be some serious confidence that is going to be shaken in the U.S. dollar, the U.S. system. Uh, and I mean, this isn't just specific. Everything I'm saying here is not just specific to the dollar, U.S. dollar, and the United States. It can be, to some extent, generalized to other countries and, and regions as well. Um, but, but you can't just gloss over the greatest economic dislocation in history and then also assume that everything's going to get back to normal right away. And that's why stocks are at very high levels or should be at very high levels. It's it's just it's just a bad way of doing things. It's just I mean how how do you justify that way of thinking? I mean again, ultimately this goes back to goal seeking, this goes back to this constant optimism. People un, unable to I think face reality, economic realities. Unable to face the fact that there are so many reasons to be bearish right now long term i'm not talking about just the stock market because again i talked about you know the product of credit and liquidity and of course you know inflows because of inflation or because of you know you could go into emerging market problems whatever i'm not just talking about the stock market but i'm just talking about the economy reasons to be bearish on the economy right now are as strong as they have ever been and yet, pundit after pundit is coming out with reason after reason as to why 2021 is going to be a great year or we have nothing to worry about after this you know, very acute slowdown is over. And it's, it's, it's just wrong. In a perfect world, that would be the case. You know, There's a lot of talk right now. Who should we blame for the coronavirus and, and how bad it is? And, and let's see here. I'll limit myself to one minute here. Can I say in one minute, all the people that I think are to blame to some extent um, without you know, going into too much detail? One minute. So first of all, governments, I think, deserve some amount of blame. China deserves a lot of blame. They covered it up early on. They continued, I think, to cover up cases, deaths, 
um, even now uh, potentially limiting uh, the release or, or the completion of some, some research onto the origins of the Wuhan virus. China deserves a lot of blame. Governments around the world, including here in the United States, at the state, at the city, at the county, and yes, at the federal level, even our own president, acted way too slow early on. Eventually, a lot of them caught on, but it was in many ways too late. They deserve a lot of blame. The media deserves a lot of blame. They did the same thing for all this talk about always being anti-Trump and whatnot. They were, many of them were in that same camp early on. The coronavirus is no worse than the flu. It's nothing to worry about, etc. You saw it in the financial media as well. The media, is, a lot of blame has to lay on them as well. However, that's 55 seconds. How about the economic side of things? The, the gut reaction is, to, well, it's the people that lock down the economy. That's who's to blame for the economic dislocation. And, and again, I'm not going to make this an argument about is that the right decision or not. I struggle with it myself. I think it was the right decision. However, I'm uncomfortable with the restrictions on, on rights, basic rights, First Amendment rights. I personally am in the camp of I'm going to voluntarily participate in this campaign, the social distancing campaign. However, I'm not a big fan of some of the restrictions that governments have done in some cases. And it's just, it's tough. But I'm, I'm, not, I'm not getting into an ideological argument about that right now. Um, it's not a fair argument for you guys anyways, because... I'm the one talking, and, and you guys just have to comment. And, and if you're listening to the podcast, you don't even have that recourse. You'd have to send me an email, right? Um, so, so maybe I, it's not even a fair argument. I'm not even giving you guys the chance of time to talk, right? Uh, but th- that's not what I'm getting into, right? Um, what I'm getting at right here is that, yes, in terms of, of people having to stay home from work, losing their jobs, even small businesses going up, uh, going under, yeah, it's to some extent, you know, the fault of mayors, governors, the federal government, um, A, maybe being too slow to act. And by the way, when I say federal government, I'm not just putting blame at Trump's feet. I think many agencies had, again, okay, 55 seconds, but let's go a little bit more on, on who's to blame. The federal government, CDC, prior to this, and even when this pandemic was coming out, was constantly rated as the best country, the U.S. as a whole, really, not just CDC, the best country in the world to deal with a potential pandemic. Well, guess what? I can name quite a few countries that did a better job than us. South Korea, Hong Kong, Singapore, uh, Taiwan, probably Japan as well, and some other countries that did pretty well also. I don't, I don't know how, but, but anyways, I mean, there's all this talk about, you know, CDC and their funding's been cut, yada, yada, yada. Well, we have to understand that, that the, the whole, we have to prevent a pandemic thing, um, the, you know, the whole, you had one job CDC to prevent what we're dealing with right now. Well, they're to some extent limited. I mean, they can't prevent a pandemic that somebody's not going to keep out of the country, but, but this wasn't just a CDC effort. I mean, you look at their funding, but you add to that the funding of FEMA and the Department of Homeland Security, um, probably to some extent some other, you know, oddball agencies, you know, Department of uh, Health, I don't know if that's, you know, the FDA, some of those types of agencies, um, intelligence agencies, they should have been somewhat responsible for this, the CIA, 
right? And to some extent, maybe the FBI, FBI, the NSA, you know, the alphabet agencies. Even the Department of Defense should have had some insight to this as well. I mean, there's a lot of agencies that should have been on top of this, the State Department. It wasn't just the CDC. Massive amounts of funding that dwarf any other country's fundings for these types of programs, and they drop the ball, right? So blame. Um, again, I'm not trying to play blame game, but let's not just forget what happened early on and, and how it got to where it is now. But anyways, um, yeah, so anyways, governors, mayors, federal government, president, etc., yeah, you can say they're all to blame for this economic dislocation. And that may be true for the temporary economic dislocation. But the long term, I think a lot of that can be you know, put at the feet of, of central planners, at, at the feet of those that have constant, and not just central planners, but everybody that's ever cheered them on. What would this downturn and the eventual recovery from it look like if the U.S. economic picture was was flipped upside down in the sense that people, we, we didn't struggle with an overload of debt at every level of the society. And again, I'm not trying to point finger. Again, I, I have my own debt. You know, you guys know I'm a grad student, soon to be graduate. And and it's, um, right, we, we, many of us have debt, right? Um, not pointing fingers, but but how about those that, that encouraged this ever-increasing amount of debt at the corporate, at the federal, at the consumer level. Corporations in massive amount of debt, huge amount of federal debt, huge amount of student loan debt and housing debt and auto loan debt and credit card debt and personal loan debt, etc. Right? What would it have looked like if instead that level of debt was relatively low, we weren't a highly leveraged society or economy, and instead actually carried a fair amount of, of savings. Well, this would have been an unfortunate downturn, but many of us would have had the savings to make it through it, right? Um, the you know If the government were to do stimulus, which they, again, I, I'm not in agreement with that whatsoever, but, but if they were to do that, uh, stimulus other than you know funding for like health programs and stuff like that, um, it would have been not as big of a deal. They would have been adding to a a very small deficit, maybe in the hundreds of billions, versus a $23 trillion deficit, right? And and people would have had large savings. And when it was all said and done, there wouldn't have to be this massive debt relief programs that the federal government and the Federal Reserve wouldn't have to nationalize all this debt, socialize all this debt. Corporations wouldn't need massive bailouts. And who's, you know, whose fault is it that our economy is set up like that? Well, a lot of it's the central planners. Yep. You're right. Corporations and individuals make those choices. However, their ability to make that choice was was really allowed because rates have been so low for so long, money has been so easy for so long, and it creates a situation where, you know, for decades, people could get loans willy-nilly. Money was easy. Interest rates were low. Debt was encouraged because it brought forward economic growth to now and, and you know, put off the, the difficult times for the future. Well, the difficult times are now. And and had things been done differently, if we had a culture, and I think more importantly, central planners and government and central bank that didn't try and distort the normal prices of money, our debt picture, our savings picture, would be vastly different. 
And yes, it would suck that it would be out of work. Yes, it would be a, the greatest economic shock ever. However, we probably wouldn't be at risk of a massive financial crisis, nor would we be at risk of a massive inflationary uh, problem for years in the future, and we won't be dealing with this long-term pile up of debt that's just getting larger and larger by the second, right? I think there has to be some blame for the long-term economic um, malaise that we'll be dealing with. Has to be some blame on central planners. Yes, individuals make those decisions as well, right? I made that decision as well. I don't want to uh, shirk responsibility in any way for that. However, broadly speaking, that the price of money, interest rates have been distorted. The, the easiness of money has been distorted by central banks, by the moral hazard that they've created, by you know being the backstop for the entire financial system and for many major markets. Um, and that, in turn, has created this environment where many people can borrow with, with very limited risk and low rates. And that's a big part of why in five years, I think we're going to be in a tough, still in a tough economic pitch picture compared to where we are now. I, I appreciate uh, to all my listeners for tuning in for today's, uh, you know, 36 minute plus podcast. You know, for those of you in the YouTube world, um, I am on most major podcast platforms, if that's easier for you. Um, I very much appreciate you subscribing over there. But if you just want to listen through YouTube, I appreciate that as well. Um, one other thing I haven't talked about in a while is is a link down below in the description to Delphia. Check it out for yourself. It's a, uh, it's a startup program that hasn't fully got off the ground yet because I need a number of people on board with it. But it's, it's a program where you get paid essentially for your data. And, and you'll have to kind of check it out for yourself to, to get more information than that. But it's very interesting. Link below in the description. It's my own affiliate link, just a disclaimer there. But as always, thank you from the bottom of my heart for tuning in to today's Silver Fortune podcast, and God bless.